Welcome to The Common Bridge, where policy and current events are discussed in a fiercely nonpartisan manner. The host, Richard Helpy, is a philanthropist, entrepreneur, and columnist who has over a million listeners around the world. His podcast and YouTube show draws guests and audiences across the political spectrum. And welcome to The Common Bridge. Today, Rich welcomes back his friend, the Honorable Milton Mack. Judge Mack has been a prior guest on The Common Bridge, and he's a longstanding probate judge in Wayne County, Michigan, as well as the Emeritus State Court Administrator for the State Court of Michigan. Rich and the Honorable Milton Mack will discuss mental health, bail reform, changes in the judicial system, telemedicine, and lots more. I think you'll really like this, and we join them now in conversation. Judge Mack, it's a pleasure to have you back with us on The Common Bridge. How have you been? I've been great. It's a pleasure to come back. I enjoy your show. Thank you so much for being there. And before we went on the air, you were talking about people wanted you to be a mediator. And I can't think of a better job for you than to bring people together and find common ground. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It's another chapter in my life. Well, I'm sure those that you're mediating with, it's to their benefit. You've been involved with mental health and mental health policy for a very long time. The interaction with the criminal justice system, what's going on in the jails. Uh, We did talk about this in the prior episode. Where are we today with mental health? Is it better understood? Is it worse understood? Are we heading in the right direction? What's the, the update? We're actually heading in the right direction. I mean, we started out poorly. The Community Mental Health Act of 1963 was supposed to deinstitutionalize but provide a system of outpatient care. The outpatient system never happened. The result was many of the people who were institutionalized couldn't survive well in the community, and they ended up in jail or in, or homeless. And just to give you an example, at the beginning of the pandemic, the inmates of the Wayne County Jail, 51% had a case history with community mental health. Oh, no. And it's not easy to get a case history with community mental health because they don't take everybody. Uh, we, th- we think maybe half of the population in our state with serious mental illness has no access to mental health care. So those, that's a huge barrier. But on the other hand, in terms of being able to reduce our use of jails, that's improving. And basically, we're trying to reduce incarceration, but we're also trying to improve interaction between police and people with mental illness. I was on the Mental Health Commission in 2004. We said the problem with the mental health code is it waits too long. We want to wait till that precise moment where we can intervene just before they do something terrible. Mm-hmm. So we've done two major things in Michigan now. First, we changed the standard. So now the standard is, are you a person who doesn't understand your need for treatment? And this is likely to lead to a relapse and uh, cause the threat of harm to yourself, a risk of harm to yourself. The Court of Appeals said untreated mental illness in terms of schizophrenia creates a risk of dementia, and that's enough to order treatment. So the test now is not whether you're a danger to self or others. The test is, is there a risk of harm to yourself or others if you don't get treatment? And the immediacy of the risk of harm governs whether you're hospitalized whether it's outpatient treatment. So the second piece of the puzzle, we beefed up the outpatient treatment side. Michigan law was set up in such a way that it was easier to hospitalize someone than to put them in outpatient treatment. That seemed incredibly backwards and upside down. But when we started doing AOT, the advocacy groups were opposed to it, but it was a threat to freedom and so forth. And I'm saying it's it's an attempt to liberate someone and put them back in control of their life. So 
we have several counties that are now doing well on AOT. One of the best examples is Huron County. The first 10 people they put on AOT, they had nearly 55 hospitalizations in the previous five years. AOT is alternate outpatient treatment? Assisted outpatient treatment. Assisted outpatient treatment. Right. Right. I get used to the acronym. How often is a person that has a mental health condition seen or treated in that type of a situation? Well, if you're on assisted outpatient treatment, it really depends. I talked to people here on Township. I mentioned 55 hospitalizations before, two cents. The average cost of assisted outpatient treatment is about $6,000 a year. And then uh, it's a monitoring effect for 180 days. And it might be daily, it might be weekly, it might be a phone call. It really depends on the severity of your illness, and it depends on how much you're buying into treatment. Mm-hmm. I had a meeting with them earlier in the week, and one gentleman who had over 10 hospitalizations in the past, who they put on AOT, uh, they would renew the orders from time to time. He came in the office and said, I need to renew my AOT. Oh, is that right? So he had really bought into the treatment, and he uses that to help him stay well. It, it, you know, Just intuitively, it seems to make more sense if the only alternative is I have to go into an inpatient facility. First of all, I'm going to resist that. Right. Secondly, I have to leave my entire life behind. Right. But alternatively, if I'm in AOT, I can have my life and get the support to live it. Exactly. And we created a new process in Michigan, which is unique to Michigan, where you can go and file a petition for assisted outpatient treatment without requiring prior hospitalization Mm -hmm. and uh, without providing a doctor's report. And on top of that, we've added mediation so that people can, you can intervene early when the cognitive level is decent and work out a treatment plan. And we know this works. In Genesee County, half of their AOTs now are basically consensual where people agree to treatment. They, they have ownership of it. They, they buy into it. And because that's what you want. What are the diagnoses that you may see most frequently? Well, schizophrenia is huge, mm-hmm. and bipolar as well. Those are the two uh, big ones. Mm-hmm. They're the ones uh, have, you have schizoaffective disorder, bipolar type, for example. You have depression. But schizophrenia and bipolar are the ones that are most challenging in terms of getting people to buy into their need for treatment. But we know it happens. We know it works. So why aren't we doing it? That's that's the operative question. Now, in terms of balancing the issues with the public safety. I was cheered that police officers are being trained to better respond and have a broader toolkit. And yet I read reports coming out of New York where they perhaps uh, allowed people that shouldn't be out on the street to be there and they're conducting random assaults. What about that other side of the equation in protecting the public? Well, just because you have a mental illness does not mean you cannot be held criminally. Of, of course, right. Yeah. You know, there are, what we have to do is decide uh, how much of an involvement was there of the crime, of, mm-hmm. of the mental illness in the criminal behavior. Mm-hmm. Because people with criminal, who engage in criminal behavior, uh, be, it's not necessarily because they're mentally ill, but it may be. So the idea of Italian crisis intervention training, which actually originated in Tennessee and pretty much spread across the country, the idea is that you train police to react differently. So just for example, Miami-Dade, uh, we went down there to visit their diversion program, 
and we took a we took a reporter with us, embedded in the reporter <laughs> on our trip. And uh, so he did a ride along with a law enforcement officer, and they got a call, a disturbance at a at a Burger King. So they go there, and there's a a man in the Burger King. He's obviously out of control. So he he walks in there, and rather than confronting him right away, he says, "Hey, I'm Officer So and So. What what's your name?" And it tries to engage him in conversation. Mm-hmm. And then as he's engaged in conversation, he says, uh, well, you know, these people have a lunch. Well, we go talk outside. And he said, oh, okay. They go and talk outside. They talk for about 30 minutes. And at the end of the conversation, they shake hands, and this gentleman just goes away. So the last 10,000 uh, police encounters with persons in mental health crisis in Miami-Dade has led to less than 200 arrests, and it's led to a few thousand referrals to crisis centers to get people help. That's so positive. Are most of the people self-referring for help, or is it because of an interaction with a social service or law enforcement or referred by a family member? Well, it's really all of them, but the, the most common way that people are getting AOT right now is they get petitioned into the hospital. Mm-hmm. There's two ways to get. two ways to do this. One is outpatient treatment only petition, which a family member can do, and the other is if someone is hospitalized temporarily. I see. Now those those cases sometimes people walk in, they know they're in crisis, and and they go there anyway. Mm-hmm. Or law enforcement frequently brings them in. In fact, law enforcement is one of the main uh, persons to bring people in. But see, that's also one of the big problems because the hospitals aren't real partners in this process yet. Now, we have brought them in now. And I'll I'll tell you how that works. Last year in Michigan, there were 18,000 petitions for mental health treatment filed. That means that those 18,000 people were screened by a crisis center, found to be mentally ill and needed treatment. Then two more doctors, including a psychiatrist, examined them and certified them as requiring treatment for mental illness. That petition was filed at the probate court Set the hearing in seven days. 60% of the cases did not make it to the courthouse. What happened? Exactly. Well, I can tell you what happened. The hospitals discharged them or let them sign it voluntarily or let them sign what's called a deferral where they say, I'll go ahead and get treatment. But they're, in those cases, are they connected with the outpatient treatment provider? I see. Oh. And so, so that whole effort was a complete waste of resources that did nothing. And, and to look at it further, in Wayne County, in the last five years, Wayne County, the largest county yes. in Michigan, city of Detroit. Right. There were, over the last five years, uh, 19,000 petitions filed for 9,000 persons. 600 of those 9,000 people accounted for 36% of all petitions filed in the last five years. 57 of those people had at least 10 petitions in the last five years. And last year alone, those 57 people cost $5 million in hospitalization costs, made as many as 56 visits to the emergency room, and all of those resources were wasted. So the community knew that these 57 people are severely affected. There was no way to connect them with sensible treatment, and I just feel terrible for that person suffering from the mental illness. They're probably caught in this swirl between law enforcement, family clashes, and the ER back out on the streets and out. Is there a happy ending to the story with these 57 people? There will be, because we're now coordinating the care. See, everyone had their own silo. 
So the hospital didn't recognize that we have a new standard of care in Michigan. Mm-hmm. They're saying, well, the person's not a danger to self anymore. They don't need hospitalization, so out the door. Oh, boy. But they still need treatment. I mean, in, in the intervening time between three doctors saying you need treatment and the day of the trial, seven days later, 60% did not get well. Mm-hmm. You know, at best, they got stabilized, so they weren't homicidal or suicidal. But then they're released. So I look at that, and you see this is a revolving door, the revolving door we always talked about. I used to tell people that as a probate judge, I assumed my job was to keep that revolving door spinning. Yeah. which is what I did. So, well, we have brought the hospitals in now. They recognize that they have an obligation here. Mm-hmm. And so uh, so we can begin working on this. And, you know, with the changes in the law that we got in 2018, we literally have hundreds of people on outpatient treatment orders now. But we actually need thousands. Mm-hmm. We have about 330,000 people in Michigan who suffer from serious mental illness. Not all of them need to be hospitalized. Not all of them have to be on an outpatient treatment mm-hmm. order. But when they are in crisis, they need to be helped. And you don't help them by uh, having to spend a couple of days in the hospital and releasing them. You know, I, was, I was just going to say the this outpatient treatment only petition we talked about, mm-hmm. think of that process for someone suffering from a mental illness as opposed to one where mom calls the police, son's living in the basement, he's out of control. I, I can't do anything. He won't get treatment. Law enforcement shows up, goes down the basement, uh, arrests him, mm-hmm. transports him to the car in front of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. kidnaps him, drives him to the hospital, where he's held hostage, examined by strangers. And I can imagine the trauma of that entire process. It's horrible. And that, and then you're released in two days or three days. How does that help? It just seems like to be throwing gas on the fire. Right. There's other layers of mental health challenges. By way of example, depression mm-hmm. that most often wouldn't lead to an inpatient hospitalization or substance abuse and an addiction. I understand that there's more telehealth, telemedicine being used for people that might want routine mental health services. I know COVID opened the door for that. What's the status of those types of situations? That is in place now, and it's working well. It improves access. But uh, it's my understanding the state is thinking of cutting back on telehealth, Mm -hmm. which is a mistake. There's legislation pending at Congress to to make it permanent as a part of the Medicare formula. Mm -hmm. But think of it. We have a shortage of mental health personnel. Indeed. And telehealth enables you to make contact with them. Like Southwest Solutions in Detroit, their counselors, instead of having people come in, they make phone calls. So if you, when you set up your appointment book for the day, you maybe can see 10 people. And then four people don't show up. That time is lost. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, telehealth, I call number one. Number one's not in. I call number two. So they can increase the number of people they see. And then think of it from the patient standpoint. I don't have to drive to Detroit. I don't have to take a bus. I don't have to get child care. I don't have to sit around in this facility. I have privacy. You talk about privacy. I'm at home. Mm-hmm. I don't have to go and sit in front of people who all are thinking about well, what's wrong with them. You know, so uh, just it just makes far better use of our resources. I'm familiar with a psychiatrist who treats many people across the mental health spectrum, including, right. you know, on the far side, people that are, are indeed dangerous, you know, yeah. they're uh, violent and 
than people that have just other challenges that are uh, resulted in mental health. This psychiatrist schedule is full every day, um, feels like more good is being done with telehealth, and indeed the patients like it. Right. So we have the providers liking it and the patients liking it. So in the middle, we've got governmental policies that might impede that. And that's the reason we're on this show today is because we need to figure out how to, uh, to, to bridge that gap and get sensible policies. Do you ever meet with or on Zoom calls or anything with your peers around the country? And are there regional differences or is everybody kind of dealing with the same thing? Actually, I, I am involved. I'm uh, part of a national task force oh. that was... Uh, when I was state court administrator, I was a member of COSCA, the Council of State Court Administrators, and I wrote the paper back in 2017. I have a paper every year. The paper I wrote was decriminalizing mental illness. And as a result of that paper, the Council of State Court Administrators and Council of Chief Justices ultimately formed a national task force, which involves all the states. So the title of the paper is? Decriminalization of Mental Illness. Decriminalization of Mental Illness. Can we get that and put sure. that on our website? Sure. Uh, we will put that on uh, richardhelpy.com. It's a, it's, and you said back in 17. Right. I guess, you know, given everything that's happened, that was back there. Uh, but it's pretty recent. What are some of the key takeaways from your paper? Number one, the standard for intervention had to be changed. We can't wait for crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if we would intervene early with outpatient treatment, we can avoid hospitalization and we can avoid incarceration. And one of the big, big pieces was the idea that judges can be conveners. I think of Judge Leifman down in Miami Dade uh, when he became the public defender down there and he visited the county jail and the mental health ward, and it was horrible. You can actually go online and watch. And uh, he called a meeting of all the university persons to figure out how to fix this. And the day of the meeting came and nobody showed up. And then uh, sometime after that, he became Judge Stephen Leifman. He sent the same letter out and everybody showed up. (laughs) So as judges, we don't necessarily have the answers, but we have convening power. Indeed. And so the idea is it takes a community to solve this. You know, in the past, we had an institution, people were put in the institution. Everything's handled. Without the institution, everything is spread out. Mm-hmm. So you have the hospitals, you've got law enforcement, you've got community treatment providers, you've got the courts, you've got family independence agency. You've got all of these entities across the board that touch on this. Mm-hmm. And none of them are talking to each other. Right. Well, the, but silos. Even, right, the silos are terrible. But even during a time when someone would be inpatient treated, you still had to deal with they had to come out and become reacclimated, which... Right had to be a huge challenge, or the families couldn't handle it, and they just stayed in. Yeah. Actually, the data suggests that uh, if you take all the people who were institutionalized prior to the institutionalization, about half of them did fine. The other half didn't do so good. No, so that's 50% is not a no. very, very good performance there. No, if your airlines, 50% did not crash, I don't think people would fly very much. No, no, definitely not. We've got some other things to talk about today, but anything else that the, our listeners and viewers should know about on the mental health front? Yeah, you know, I, I think we've covered it pretty well. I think the idea is early intervention, effective outpatient treatment over time, and uh, simplify the processes for people. And if you do that and you use mediation, 
you can help people get well, stay well, and buy into their new treatment. But that's the most important thing. There's something called anastagnosia, which in the physical health world is where someone loses an arm and they insist it's still there. Right. Because part of the brain won't recognize the loss. Mm -hmm. And so people aren't in denial. They're just unable to recognize. I understand. See. So uh, overcoming that can be done, but it takes time. And uh, we know that if you have someone with a mental illness who buys into the need for treatment, the long-term prognosis is very good. And I like what you're saying because I could imagine if you're a young police officer and you're called someplace, like you have to go downstairs and get the sun. It's probably the last thing you want to do Absolutely. is to arrest the person. But you might see the more elderly mother upstairs and she's frightened. It's beyond her ability to handle it. And it's kind of one extreme or the other. And giving that officer a place to, to do what most of them want to do is serve, protect and serve. So I just very encouraged. And Judge Mack, we should do this every year, have you on the show okay. and, and, and keep getting updates. One of the things we talked about last time was bail okay. and bail reform. And it was very interesting. We've got lots of comments from our listeners and viewers about not understanding that bail was often used as a way to keep a person incarcerated because they didn't have the $100 to come up with the bail for their trespass. And by the time their hearing came up, they pled guilty in order to just be sentenced to time served so they could go home. I think we can all agree that that's not good. Where are we today on bail reform? Well, it's moving ahead slowly. Mm -hmm. But uh, I can tell you the bail bond industry is very opposed to this because this is a a real moneymaker for them. You know, and really, we should be thinking of it in terms of go, no go. If you are someone who has committed a murder and you're able to post a million dollars bond, mm-hmm. does that really make sense? I think I this I, this sounds like a case study coming up. So, yeah, I'll take the bait. That doesn't make sense. Are you, is, is there a case you have in mind? Well, there's a TV show, to, I think it was called To Catch a Killer, uh-huh. where uh, this uh, real estate magnet in New York or East Coast. Oh, Durst. Yeah. Durst, the Durst case, where... Um, you know, he posted the bond, and then he fled, and he murdered one of the key witnesses against him. Oh, gee. And he was eventually caught and convicted after he killed someone else, but many years later. So, you know, there are people who commit a crime that is so serious that uh, they just need to be locked up until you have a hearing. Indeed. And then there are others who keep missing their court dates, and they need to be held until their court date. But, you know, technology has helped us to alter that. We can send text messages to people telling them your court date is tomorrow, mm-hmm. or your court date is just like the dentist. That's been proven to be highly effective at getting people to show up, because most of the people who don't show up for the court case are people who are somewhat disorganized in their life mm-hmm. and can't get it together to remember. The only time they remember is when a sheriff shows up and takes them off the jailhouse. Oh, gee. There have been interesting studies on this. In, in New York, they studied the Rikers Island prison system, and they studied the judges who send people to Rikers Island, bail or no bail. Then they had a computer do the same thing on the same cases the judges did. They looked at the cases the judges said, no, you're going to Rikers, but you can go home, versus the computer who said, no, you're going to Rikers, you're not going home. Well, the computer did better. So the computer's more objective. The problem with judges is that they have implicit biases that cause them to make decisions the way they do. Someone, well, you look safe, 
goes, you can go, and you don't look so good. So, Or the judge says, hmm, I saw someone or something like this similar. I'm not going to make the same mistake twice. Right. You know, you know, some Judge Mac, even discounting for the terrible things that pass for news reporting these days, you hear stories about prosecutors in certain areas claiming, hey, my job is to empty the jails. And okay, getting people out that don't belong there is one thing, but what about the reverse of that? And I, I don't know all the facts because information's hard to come by, but in uh, Waukesha, Wisconsin, there was allegations that the person that ran down people attending a parade and killed several of them had a long rap sheet, including running people over with a car, and he was let out without either ca- either without cash bail or with a low enough cash bail, and he went out and killed people. How does that balance come into our justice system? Well, what you, you can never predict what someone's going to do. But if you have someone with a history of violence, or you have someone with a history of not showing up for court hearings, and uh, you're not sure they're going to show up, which is the purpose of bail, then it's no bail. It's it's not a you take the money out of the equation. You either get to go home with which on a tether, or you have to stay in jail pending your hearing. Yeah, you know, you're going to have situations where someone who is released does something terrible. We're never going to get perfect. And the idea is not, it's not that you want to, I don't think we should be emptying the jails. There are people who certainly belong there. But on the other hand, we know that the average American, if called upon to scrape together $500 today, could not do it. Uh, If they get arrested, they can't make $500 bail. They may lose their housing. They may lose their job. So there's really serious consequences. And, And most of the attention is on these low-level offenses. Why even bother with a $100 bond or a $300 bond or a $500 bond? We know that if you really don't want this person out, then it's bail. Mm-hmm. It's not you can buy your way out right. and you'll be fine like the million-dollar right. case. Or, no, we think you're going to do bad things if you leave here so you're staying in. Yeah, too high risk. Yeah, too high if risk. You, so, if, you're, if you're high risk, you stay. You, you've got a, a long history of misbehavior. Felonies and felonies mm-hmm. and so forth, and no, we're going to keep you until we have your trial. Do the judges also weigh the seriousness of the crime that the person's accused of? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, I'm thinking of the horrible tragedy we've just had up in Oxford. Right. So the young man that did the murdering, he is locked up, and I, I can't imagine him making bail. And, or somebody saying you get to be out. But what about the parents? Well, the, actually, the young man is, is a great example. If you have someone who uh, is literally caught red-handed killing people, why would you set bond? Why would you? What, what if he's the son of a billionaire? Money's no object. It should be bail, no bail. I mean, I should say go, no go. Go, no go. Either, yes. either you stay or you go. If, mm-hmm. if serious charges and you've got to stay. The parent situation, yeah, I don't really understand what's happening there. You know, they did not behave in a way that made sense. Whether it's an offense for which they should have a million-dollar bond, I would, I would wonder about that. Whether, are they really a flight risk? I mean, there was some suggestion they go to Canada. Well, here in Detroit, you could go to Canada if you, if you could get over the border. If you have a vaccine card, you can go. Right. <laughs> so you're not going very far with $4,000. That whole process just didn't seem quite right to me. Yeah, and, you know, not to veer off topic, but right. the parents based on, uh, and I think the reporting has been done pretty good, so that when you buy a firearm and you're intending to give it to someone else, you have to tell the gun shop 
on your federal questionnaire. They didn't. And that's one, clearly. You know, this will all get adjudicated. Right. I, I don't think we've heard the last of the charges against them. But I'm just thinking about the difficult things that a judge has to decide. Right. Here's a petition for bail. And the defense is saying, Your Honor, um, my client represents no threat to the community, is not a flight risk, and they need to get back to work. And the prosecution saying the, the opposite. Right. And having to make that. Is it just always up to the judge or is there appeals on bail? And it's really the judge. The, the, these sorts of things are decided by the judge of record. Mm-hmm. And you rarely see it appealed uh, because the time, the time it takes you to appeal, the trial is already done. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and that the case with the parents is, is more challenging. Giving a gun like that to a 15 year old child who it appears has emotional issues, mm-hmm. that's problematic. I've spoken about guns many times on this show, and in this particular case, what's egregious, that particular firearm is designed for concealed carry. It's a very popular weapon with people that do have permits and are qualified for concealed carry. It's not hunting. You can certainly do target shooting with a less powerful weapon. They put a very dangerous weapon designed for one purpose into the hands of a minor child with tragic consequences. I think the egregiousness of the result and the consequences and these four young people killed, that will certainly weigh on a judge and judges will up that bail bond because mm-hmm. of that. It's Does, hard, you can't get the emotion out of the judge. No, well, it's the judges are, are there to arbitrate on behalf of our society and our community. Is there always a cash bond or can the judge say, look, There's no amount of money. Actually, the judge does have the right under our court rules to say no bail, no bond. Just as the judge has the right to say, at least on your own personal cognizance, which you can do. You can tell the person, okay, they call it a personal bond. You're out on a personal bond. Or they could say, we're going to put you on a tether, which Mm -hmm. is popular. Uh, They may require you to have telephone reporting periodically. Mm -hmm. Depending on the level of risk, they'll have more conditions of release. You know, the irony is Kentucky is one of the first states to abolish bail, but they did it for the wrong reason. The individual was running for governor. The governor who got elected mm-hmm. in his campaign, his opponent was backed by the bail bond industry. So when he became governor, he decided to teach the bail bond industry a lesson. So Kentucky went without bail. And again, why we're doing this program, it should be about policy, uh-huh. not about payoff. Uh, and that's why we have the common bridge. It, it's astonishing that we can't agree on this. Uh, are there states besides Kentucky that have said, we're going to do away with cash? Yes. It's been happening in a number of states, actually. Like New Jersey has gone in that direction. And it has reduced the uh, jail population mm-hmm. in, in several places without any increase in crime. They, these people did not pose a risk of crime. And they didn't really pose much of a risk of not showing up for the hearing. But they did not have any money. Yeah, And it seemed like an incredible waste of money to incarcerate the person and deprive them of a chance to make a living. Right. I can't see anybody winning out of that except, I guess, the bail bonds. They win handsomely. You think about it, you could lose your house, you could lose your job, mm-hmm. you know, all the chaos that goes on, you might chop protect the services, might get involved. Would like a driving under the influence charge be something that bail would typically be set or typically right. denied? Very rarely is a driving under the influence something where you're held pending the trial. Almost always get a bond of some sort, unless you, know, you killed somebody. Mm-hmm. Then that can change the equation. Right, the more concerned flight. There's been some other changes in the legal system. And, of course, I'm not 
a lawyer, a judge, or a legal scholar, but keenly interested in policies. And one of the things I've heard a term, preemptory challenges, when seating a jury, what's the lay definition of a preemptory challenge? What's been the history and kind of what's going on right now? Well, a preemptory challenge is basically the right of a lawyer to strike someone off a jury uh, for no reason at all. Hmm. You don't have to have any reason at all. You just do it. And it actually originated in England because the king had peremptory challenges on the juries, but the defendant did not. Oh. So, so it's good to be the king. <laughs> Apparently, yes. So, so the reform movement began by giving the defendant the opportunity to have a few peremptories. Not as many as the king, but a few. And then over time, it, it, it morphed into the more modern system. Well, but what has happened is in England, They've abolished the peremptory challenge. Oh. You don't get a peremptory challenge. You can challenge for cause. If you think that juror number one is uh, a problem, you can say, Your Honor, I want juror number one excused because of blah, blah, blah. And the judge will say, well, uh, I disagree. We'll, we'll keep the juror. Mm -hmm. So by way of example, before I'm seated as a juror, yes. they ask me, do I know anyone in the case? Right. And I said, well, yeah, I played basketball with this guy. Right. And there would probably be follow-up questions. Could right. I be fair or impartial? Right. The one side or the other might go, you know what? We don't want anybody that knows anybody. Right. And the judge may or may not uphold it. Right. But preemptory would, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, yep. would say, we just decided we're not getting anybody from this zip code. Right. Or with this demographic characteristic. Right. Oh, yeah. Uh, and that's been uh, used a lot in this country uh, for good purposes. Tell, so, tell us about that. What happened? Well, let me just tell you. England, Scotland, Wales, Northern mm -hmm. Ireland, and Canada have all abolished peremptory challenges. Mm -hmm. And that's the source of our common law. But you get into the, the South. There were counties in the South where no black served on a jury for decades. That's horrible. And if you'll recall in our two most recent high-profile trials, mm -hmm. Alabama and, and Wisconsin, mm -hmm. in both cases, I think we had one. You mean the Georgia case? The Georgia case. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, Georgia case, uh, it would appear that uh, black persons were peremptorily eliminated. Pretty oh, in both cases? Yeah, in both cases. I understood that about Georgia. I did yeah. not understand that about Wisconsin. Yeah. Yeah. So you had one, one black person on each jury, which doesn't reflect the population. There is a, a movement beginning here to change that. So and I, when I say here, I mean in the United States, uh, because of the history of it. The, the history of peremptory challenges is that explicit bias and implicit bias can be used to keep people off the jury, mm -hmm. and so it's not representative. You know, we have stories across the South about uh, people being found guilty of murder, sentenced to die, uh, with all white juries, mm -hmm. and it's a black person. So recently, Arizona, effective January 1, is eliminating peremptory challenges. So what this means is when you call a panel of people to serve as jurors, you can ask the jurors questions. That's called void deer. Void deer, yes. Mm -hmm. So you know this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you know, if you decide you don't like a particular juror, you're going to have to think long and hard about challenging that juror. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to feel pretty good that if I challenge that juror, that juror's going to get kicked. Because if you challenge that juror and their juror doesn't get kicked, now you got a juror sitting there who's not real happy with you. If you do get rid of peremptory challenges, these are the positive outcomes. Number one. 
Explicit bias is eliminated from the jury selection process. Implicit bias is also eliminated from the jury selection process. And the ability of lawyers to fix the jury is eliminated. But I think there's just something unseemly about you know, lawyers get to pick their jury, literally. Well, I understand there's jury consultants that help oh, absolutely. them. They, uh, they, they help pick it, and it's, um, that, to me, uh, just seems like manipulation of the mm-hmm. process, and I don't think it's right. It's sort of like they say that um, politicians shouldn't pick their voters. The mm-hmm. voters should pick the politicians. It's the same thing. And I'm a lawyer, too, and in my time, I've exercised my peremptories, too. But I think justice would be far better served if we eliminated peremptory challenges. It sounds like it. And an attorney that I've worked with for many decades told me a long time ago, he said, you know, juries usually get it right. Yeah. Has that been your experience as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. Pretty remarkable. But I mean, I recall a case we had years ago where our client wanted a a number of those, I thought, out of question. And uh, but he insisted on it. We went to trial and the jury gave him his number. My experience has been juries do a good job. As has been mine from an observer. And, you know, we had a little business litigation. Other changes in the judicial system, when we talked before, the, the broad umbrella of virtual justice. What's happening, what's working, and what is being rethought? The funny thing about that is in early 2019, I did a presentation on the future of the judiciary. Mm-hmm. And in it, I talked about Zoom here. In, in 19, before right. the pandemic. Before the pandemic. Good timing. <laughs> and so we went out and bought Zoom licenses for all the courts in Michigan in 2019 in the hopes of using them eventually, not planning on using them <laughs> a year later. So we were able to go. When, when the pandemic hit and we shut down, we said, okay, we're going Zoom, and we opened the courts virtually. I actually served as a virtual visiting judge in Macomb County from my office in my house for three months last year. Is that right? And I've been doing it recently in the Wayne County Probate Court. Now, wait a minute. When they say, you know, all rise, here comes the judge, does does that? Do they have to stand up in front of their, their Zoom cameras when you turn on? You know, they don't say that anymore. They don't? Okay. I don't even get introduced. No. <laughs> I'm just on the screen, and the clerk calls next case. I know there, there are those who think, well, it lacks the formality and the majesty and so forth. But 60 to 70% of the work of the courts is routine. And nobody cares about the majesty. All they care about is I want to get my case heard quickly and be done and be out of here. Now, are these only for bench trials or is it also for, like, how could you see the jury on a Zoom call? Actually, it's not that hard. Well, no, you don't know who else is in the room with the juror. Well, we're not doing it just yet. Well, there's that. You have to, you have to sort of rely on trusting people. But we're seeing in Texas and Georgia, they're doing jury selection virtually. And uh, we have a couple of courts in Michigan that have done that as well. And what's interesting is they've discovered they're getting more diverse panels that way. Oh, for the selection. In the selection process. So instead of you've been called, call in, got to come to the courthouse, we're going to sit there. It's going to be, you're invited to be voidiered in this time in front of your Zoom camera. I could see that for the seating of the jury, but to hear a case the jurors are virtual to hear a case actually in washington state they're doing it is that that is and the juries love it and so you think about it if you actually put it in you know the fear you know change fear of change all the time mm-hmm. especially in the judicial system i used to say that if you had a time traveler come from the 16th century they still recognize two things the church and the courts mm-hmm. uh, i'm not so sure about the courts anymore 
Yeah. But Washington State actually does civil jury trials online. What's interesting is that the jury is all on the screen, so you can see them all. Mm-hmm. So a judge knows whether they're listening or not. And then the juror can look right at the witness because they actually get a better view of the witness on Zoom than they do in the courtroom. I know I served on a jury one time. We could take notes, but that we had to leave them behind. And I'm just trying to think how that process would work on Zoom, you know, when there's distractions. Your yeah. cell phone's going off, your doorbell's ringing, somebody's, you know, banging around in another section of the house. Well, we're studying Washington State very carefully. Mm-hmm. And, uh, in fact, uh, the, the consultant we're using for our strategic planning process is the consultant for Washington State. Now, what, what strategic planning process are you working on? Uh, well, this is something that uh, started in 2011. I was on Judicial Crossroads Task Force with mm-hmm. the State Bar to design the judiciary of the future. And one of the things I suggested was we should have a judicial council to plan strategically for the judicial system in Michigan. Not just plan for a strategic plan for the state court administrative office, but for the justice system as a whole. Last year, uh, earlier, actually earlier this year, the Supreme Court approved the idea and formed a judicial council to plan strategically for the future of Michigan's judiciary as a whole. And there's 29 members. It includes judges, court administrators, county clerks, lawyers, members of the public, and we're in the strategic planning process right now. We're still reasonably early, but we've identified major goals and then different strategies within those goals and tactics. And we're, right now, we're just throwing everything in. Right? You have an idea, throw it in. Mm-hmm. Just throw them all in, and we'll, then we're going to start sorting it out. So we anticipate by next March, that we'll be able to present a strategic plan for the future to the Supreme Court. And then it's going to be a strategic planning cycle so that there's quarterly meetings to update, revise. And then while we have 29 members of this Judicial Council, I expect we're going to have over 100 people serve on committees. So we'll set up committees. Like We may set up a committee around technology in the courts. We would bring in people who know technology. We had over 200 applicants for these positions. We have a farm team, you might say. Yeah, what I really love about what I'm hearing is that Instead of the court reacting, a la, we have a pandemic, now what do we do? You're saying, well, what's the environment we're in? What's the technology? What do people want? What are the changes in the society? And I'm really cheered by the idea that if you go more virtual, you get more diverse jury panels and versus who can come to the courthouse. Right. And I, I think being called and serving as a juror is a noble undertaking. And, you know, if I was facing something, I needed a jury for, I would, you know, want to be tried by, you know, a jury of my peers, not doing anything that would cause that as far as I know. Right. Okay. Good. But, but, but I, uh, they, they interviewed a, uh, an elderly woman in Washington state who said, you know, because it was a virtual situation, I didn't have to drive an hour mm-hmm. and go through security and be exposed to problems. Yes. And then, then drive home in the dark and ruin my day. Yeah. Yeah. You know, this way, you know, I got up at a relaxing hour. I go, you know, close the door, turn on my computer, do not disturb. And I sit there and I, I, I watch the trial. And there are breaks from time to time. And then at the end of the day, I just open the door and I'm back You're home. Yeah, now, that's fantastic. What's, who complained about that? There are those who, you know, like being on the bench and banging the gavel, that sort of thing. And like having everyone come to them. Well, you know, Zoom could just add a gavel. That's okay, they, they, guys, you can raise your hand and, and you can chat so they can just add the gavel. But that just makes a lot of sense. And it's when we have conversations like this, it, 
gives me great hope for the future. Uh, you know, we've been so inundated with negative messages from the left, from the right, from the media, always looking for the divisive thing on any number of topics. But one of the things I've discovered by hosting this show is that good people doing good things and working hard to make us a better, more harmonious place. And I just wish the people that are in the reporting business would actually get out and report on this versus doing the heavily commercialized divisive thing. That was my commercial for today. <laughs> uh, Judge Mack, anything else that you'd like to chat about today? I, this is, I always find our conversations fascinating. Yeah, I, I just comment that we did an external and internal survey in connection with the strategic planning process. Guess what the number one issue, as we see, is problem for the next three to five years in Michigan? In, within the court system? Well, the biggest issue facing the courts for the next three to five years in Michigan well, it can't be that we don't have enough lawyers because we have enough of those. <laughs> it can't be that we don't have enough criminals. It can't be that it's got to be we don't have enough judges. Nope. Not even, not even It wasn't in the top five. Whoa. But number one for external and internal behavioral and mental health. And that's a great way to tie off this episode where we started with mental health, ended with mental health. And it's uh, such a honor and a pleasure to talk to you. This is Rich Helpy with our special guest, the Honorable Judge Milton Mack. We've been talking today about mental health, bail reform, legal reforms as we move further into this century. Richard Helpy's Common Bridge is available on YouTube TV and at most podcast outlets and at richardhelpy.com. Please subscribe and please join in the conversation with your comments or your confidential emails. And this is Rich Helpy signing off on The Common Bridge. Thanks for joining us on The Common Bridge. Remember to rate us, review us, and comment about what you heard today and recommend us to your friends. Visit us at richardhelpy.com and sign up for special promotions. This broadcast was produced by Stunt3 Media and is available on YouTube and all podcast directories. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy.